0: Hello
1: from Austin. Welcome to episode 94 of the National Security Law Podcast. We are brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Wednesday night. It's October 10th. I'm Bobby
0: Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. It's another one of those nighttime episodes, which can only mean our schedules were once again totally uh, <laughs> incompatible. So, so you were traveling. You went to, I believe, Louisville? I went to Louisville. Were you
1: there as an NCA
0: investigator checking <laughs> out allegations of, about Rick Pitino? A little soon, buddy. A little soon. A little soon. It's a little too fresh. Um, but no, I had a, I had a great time at Louisville with uh, my friend Justin Walker, who's on the faculty there, who set this all up. Um, Justin's had an interesting couple of, of months. Justin's a former Kavanaugh and Kennedy clerk. Oh, wow. So things have been interesting wow. on, on, on his side. I'd. Were you
1: talking about Supreme Court stuff?
0: Um, I was actually talking about Guantanamo. I remember that place. I know, right? We should find a way to work that into the show tonight. <laughs> <laughs> something new something and different for this podcast, a Guantanamo <laughs> reference. But so it's one night, um, Karen was telling me that, you know, there's a, 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 a colleague of hers who's a fan of the show, who was pestering her all day, when's it going to drop, reloading <laughs> the feed. You know, hopefully the, the, the absence makes the heart grow fonder. The good news is, here we are. The bad news is here we are. <laughs> <laughs> well so, um, our baseball predictions. One of our baseball predictions is looking good, and one is not. I'm feeling good. I, as you'll recall, I was a, an Astros supporter in all of this. I'm a, as
1: anyone who's listened to this show knows it. when it comes to sports, I'm a total homer. Um, and fortunately, the Astros really deserve it. They're looking great. But of course, the real championship will be the ALCS when
0: them and the Red Sox go at it. That's going to be that's going to be really fun baseball to watch. Um, I mean, as, you know, this. I was telling you the statistic that I I I, I find fascinating um, that this ALCS is going to be the second most combined wins for playoff teams in Major League history. Um, Two hundred and eleven. Um, and actually, the record I had the year right. This is now like our seventh take, everybody. Yeah, because we um, keep getting hung
1: up on the baseball. No, no,
0: no. You got hung up on the t-shirts once. Well, that's true. Actually, and we'll we, get to we that share the blame. That's true. It's even. But so the record actually was the 1998 World Series. I just had the wrong opposing team. So the Yankees and the Padres um, combined for 212 wins in 1998.
1: Like I gotta say, it's hard to remember the Padres being that good. Even though I was in New York at that time, saw you know the whole playoff thing unfold. That was such an iconic Yankees team.
0: Was that Kevin Brown? Was that when he was, like, really good for the Padres? The oh, pitcher? maybe before and, like, he ended up. Ken yeah. Caminiti. Or was, he, was that his Padres time? Anyway, Who um, knows? the Yankees were so good back then. I mean, like as a Mets fan, 98 was just when the Mets started to turn it around. Um, you know, 99, they won the wild card. 2000, they went all the way to the World Series where they lost to the Yankees. Yeah, Subway um, Series. That was fun. No, wasn't, it wasn't
1: wasn't that Roger Clemens and Mike Piazza there? That wasn't fun, that like, wasn't no, fun. Yeah, right? It wasn't fun how it turned out, but it was nice to be back in the World Series.
0: In my like in my meaningful adult life, the Mets have been in two World Series and they lost both of them in five games. Yeah. And I was at Game Five the second time.
1: That's brutal. So well, clearly, like you're the it's problem. My fault. It's talk about t-shirts. <laughs> all right. So the t-shirts, guys. As you'll recall, we are selling podcast t-shirts, and the uh, beyond the price above and beyond the production costs to the producer, Custom Inc., it's all going to charity, to ALS Texas, which does uh, support for research and for patient care for ALS victims. i got to say, I'm I'm not sure if I ever predicted how many uh, shirts we'd sell or how much charitable funding we'd raise, but this has exceeded my expectation after one week. I'm so excited. Um, There's two shirts, the burnt orange one. We've sold 81 of them, and the charitable proceeds... The the excess or the the, the charitable component of that plus extra donations that people buying that shirt have thrown in, 820 bucks. Wow. Nice job, y'all. Yeah. But the burnt orange side needs to get after it because the pepper gray side has sold 83 shirts. Whoa. And the amount raised on the pepper gray side, $1,380. So we've got two. Aren't the pepper gray shirts more? They are, but the uh, but the but the differential that goes to charity oh, yes. should be uh, roughly the same. Yeah, okay. So somebody, I think somebody made
0: a, a big gift there. So
1: that's whoever that Thanks, was. Thanks, mom. Yeah, whoever that was. That's awesome. Two thousand two hundred dollars. Let's keep it coming. I, I'm what not sure. My, I, I'm
0: not sure my mother could do anything that would stagger me more than show up one day in an NSL podcast T-shirt. Challenge delivered. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Karen, we also, Karen, if you heard that, make it happen. She didn't hear it. Nope. So, the other thing is, we actually, we we don't have details yet, but we do want to put on people's radar. We are coming up on episode number 100. 100! I know. We should do something. So, we actually are going to do something. We're going to do something. It'll be different. It it just so happens, through a, a simple twist of fate, Strange. Wait. What's the What's the Steve Martin movie? The really good Steve Martin movies. Is it? Well, there's many good no, Steve no, Martin movies. One, okay, but now so we have a frivolity topic. Right, anyway, so so um, <laughs> you and I are both, for unrelated reasons, going to be in our nation's capital, Washington D.C. on Wednesday, November fourteenth, and we should be about. Especially if we throw in a deep dive between we, we, now. We need, and we need an then. extra deep dive. We'll be at hundred.
1: So we should do it live in Washington. Holy cow! Okay, guys. Steve and I are bringing the show to Washington because we're going to be there anyways. That I, I day. I have
0: no idea how we're going to pull this off, but, but we, we don't know where. We've resolved to do it. We're not sure why, but market <laughs> calendars, lunch time, probably Wednesday, November fourteenth. Yeah, so
1: I've got a thing. There's an event earlier that day. I think I'll be free around lunchish, and so All we right. have this sort of twelve thirty target in mind. Stay tuned, and uh, details to we'll follow. And
0: please come. Can you imagine how <laughs> humiliating it'll be if it's like us and the crickets? So I, I, I do have to, th- I do have to, I do suspect that the mode um, of, of uh, geographic centrality among our listeners it's, is the Washington, D.C. Oh, I do think
1: it's our best bet to have more than five attend who, who are not related to us. Right. Um, <laughs>
0: so we are, we're kind of putting ourselves out there, folks. Well, we'll have more details. Hopefully it'll be uh, an event that's worth coming to. Now, here's the thing. We don't we'll have, to... have to have a special guest. I don't
1: know. <laughs> that sounds like a whole extra layer yeah, of, of things. Complexity. Um, Okay, so we better earn it by having something substantive to talk about. People really don't want to hear us rambling, probably, about True. the baseball stuff. So, so let's, t-
0: let's tell everybody what we're going to talk about today. All
1: right, give us a run of show. Uh, uh, first up, how about um, let's do some domestic uh, war powers law stuff. Ooh, got, we've got two moving parts here. One, uh, Senator Kane's letter, which raises a lot of really interesting issues, uh, kind of focused on the domestic legal basis. But so, I guess there's... Some, you tell me, is there some international law that worked in there as well?
0: Some, I mean, so this is all about like the theory of collective self defense that we're increasingly hearing rumbles about from the Trump administration right. about using force in Syria toward Iran. Right.
1: But primarily through the lens of domestic separation of powers law. So we'll talk about that a bit. And then. Um, you know, you have a piece you wrote recently uh, today. about. The, was it today? It was, was today. It for NBC, I think. Indeed, uh, NBC Think. NBC and it's Think. Seventeen years since OEF, Operation Enduring Freedom, the the overt ground force uh, intervention. Or actually, air was the first overt piece. We yeah. had ground forces already, but um, the opening of overt U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan. So we are going to talk about those things in context with the
0: AOMF. And the rather macabre fact that someone born, you know, the day that we started OEF is now old enough to go die in Afghanistan as part of the same war.
1: Yeah, that's... uh it's 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 true and we'll talk about the implications of that it, what, it is true where, which
0: whether and how that cuts one way or the other on, or or as on, matt put it the war itself is now old enough to die to in be itself. in the war yeah right. no that's that's certainly true so anyway will start there um i think we might pivot from that to what some 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 doe versus mattis updated we gotta say something about guantanamo
1: we yeah. don't have guantanamo so we can pivot over to military detainees elsewhere yeah and that gives us uh doe v. mattis and we'll check in and you know we'll give listeners uh a few seconds here to guess what the nature of the update's going to be, <laughs> and then we'll not tell them. That'll be the you know that'll hold them. In suspense. people know what the update is. There yeah. is no update. It's a, well, it's the same. No, there's
0: an update. It's just it's the okay, same it's update, the same we update we
1: that we have every two weeks. Yeah, they've kicked the can down the road again.
0: Yay! All um, right, you want to talk about Big Brother? Yes, and, and, I'm so and, and interested in and, and talking about this. you don't just mean this. the terrible CBS reality show. I'm
1: definitely don't mean that one. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna skip across the pond, and this one's for our actually it's it's really for our American audience. But it's about goings on in Europe relating to the United Kingdom and its surveillance practices. We'll do a little bit of an overview of the European Court of Human Rights chamber decision and. Uh, Big Brother Watch and others versus the United <laughs> Kingdom, and and the lens through which I want to approach it, which is kind of based on something I wrote for Lawfare, is you know what what is how should American lawyers look at this as a comparative law
0: learning moment or teaching moment at least? So we'll we'll do a bit of a dive into that one. Um, um, I want to talk a bit about Jamal Khashoggi, um, yeah. right? The you know the the Saudi journalist um, who apparently was killed in the Saudi embassy in Istanbul. It's really unbelievable. So this. We'll uh, we will unearth
1: some legal angles on that, and we'll talk about it. But then that same general topic of cross border uh, international relations and intrigue um, is sort of an interesting segue. Uh, I'm straining here for the segue, but it gets us to the uh, the extraordinary, to me, extraordinary announcement today that we have not just indicted, but we have extradited yep. via Belgium yep. a Chinese uh, intelligence community case officer, a Ministry of State security case officer, uh, for his involvement uh, in and in stealing for commercial espionage reasons, stealing from U.S. aviation companies. It's really remarkable. We'll impact that a bit. We won't go too far deep. That will leave us, of course, with some more familiar topics. You've got, like, what, 17 petitions pending in the Supreme Court, and there's now, as a result, uh, there's action developing. I want an update because I'm slowly trying to pay enough attention to grasp what the different cases oh. are
0: so we can follow this appropriately. The, the, the news is both good and bad. Depend, I mean, the news is good from the perspective of, like, the case, the chances that these cases are actually going to get the, the court's attention, and bad from the perspective of, you know, my free time. Well, in <laughs> one of the two of these, you know. And maybe my marital happiness.
1: Yeah, you know, okay. Well, then I am concerned for you. I wasn't so worried about your free time because I know you really don't have any no matter what. Indeed. Um, but you're a one-man uh, uh, crew bad. of filling the Supreme Court's docket with security-related cases that I will want to pay attention to. So I thank you, my friend.
0: I, I could actually spin a story where these would all be argued in the same month. <laughs>
1: You know, I mean, here's the thing like, as long
0: as you're there,
1: right? Yeah. I if know. you're going to be there for like a week of back to back to back to back arguments, I, I, I can stick around. A four I'll come in and we can do a
0: live show just to spare you some. I think at that point I would just stop talking. Yeah. All
1: right. Uh, anyway, so oh, we, got... and we should have some Trump landia How about in the form Nepotism. of the anti-nepotism statute and questions? I, I don't think Trump is going to nominate Ivanka Trump. No, it's going to be Kanye. <laughs> Well, there's no anti-nepotism statue on one of those. But the question has arisen, like, well, what if he wants to nominate Ivanka Trump to, to replace Nikki Haley as UN ambassador? Uh, yeah, there's a, we got a statue for that Although, 5 USC
0: 3110 but there's some
1: interesting issues uh, given Shopping. the particular type of position this would be an appointment for so we, we could play with that a bit
0: alright and I think if, if anyone is still listening at that point uh, we're going to pivot from there to some frivolity you and I both went to concerts last week yeah that was
1: so Austin of us but of course instead of seeing some like super new band that you know, frankly you and I have never heard of yeah. well we saw some pretty familiar <laughs> bands <laughs> if you listened last week you know that Steve saw the Indigo Girls true and a I, plus E equals IG. Oh, <laughs> nice. I actually know that's Amy plus Emily. There it is. I'm proud of knowing that. Thank you very much. I, for my part, went and saw Paul McCartney at, at ACL Fest Weekend One. Yeah, we heard from our house. You can, <laughs> you could probably hear me, because I was very excited. Um, and so I'll, we'll each have a little mini-reviews, and I will throw in a bonus mini-review of, roll, please, Greta
0: Van Fleet. Ooh. Yeah, that's a pretty fun one. All right, so let's dive on in with the AUMF. So, Bobby what, what what is this what's the provocation why is this even a, back on the news other than the weird anniversary that we just had
1: yeah so let's focus on the Tim Kaine side of the house Tim first Kane. so the the provocation which we talked about last week a little bit is is actually, twofold, the, the the immediate provocation or changed circumstance, which is not really a change, but there's just stuff floating around as a possibility as to what's going to happen. It has been suggested that the United States, even even maybe in a post defeat of ISIS mode, might keep combat forces in theater, not just in Iraq, where we have the consent of the government, but also in Syria to uh, to make sure that there's pressure. This isn't a claim that we're going to attack Iranian forces directly, but a claim that by being there, we can help create the conditions that will uh, prevent Iran from entrenching, which is indeed a really important
0: Foreign policy goal, totally. but it raises lots of interesting <laughs> legal questions. Please, please point me to the statute where Congress has authorized the use of military force for that purpose.
1: So so this this starts the conversation. And then uh, so Senator Kane in inquiring about this, there there are related questions that have been around for a, th- a couple of years now involving the circumstances in which we've used our armed forces against regime forces directly instead of just Islamic State forces. Uh, regime forces, which are ostensibly we are n- not normally using force against and are not claiming direct AUMF coverage for for the obvious reason that it doesn't apply to the regime, whatever else you can say about the Assad regime. Um, But we've used it in defense of our coalition partners, including the Kurdish non-state forces that are fighting with a lot of support from us. And we've basically provided them uh, air support, right? And so this has led to questions about like, well, wait, what's the basis for that? And the answer has been in the past, there have been answers along the lines of, well, look, uh, we're all in there with co-belligerent forces and in sort of much the same logic that gives you co-belligerents on the other side from us who come within the scope of the AMF by by joining in the fight against us. So too, we have co-belligerents fighting with us against a common enemy, including the Islamic State. And if and when, with a close nexus to that otherwise proper conduct, it's necessary to defend them from some third-party actor, in this case, the Assad regime, then as long as it's a limited proportional use of force to do that, that should be subsumed. Usually this is framed as subsumed somehow as an ex- implicit extension of the AMF. I would say it's more of a Article 2 implied authority that if you otherwise are there properly fighting with uh, a partner force who's on your right flank, you should be able to give them air power, so, but, so but this so, is now being contested,
0: so Kane quotes the letter so Cain had sent a letter to the Secretary of Defense asking, you know, yo, what's your theory of collective self-defense yeah and where's, where's what, your white paper dude and so there's no white paper there's got a letter back and the letter the letter from the secretary says collective self-defense is not typically limited to particular groups or individuals committing the hostile act or demonstrating hostile intent, including not being limited to groups covered by the 2001 AUMF or other congressional authorizations for the use of force. For example, U.S. forces responded in collective self-defense when Syrian pro-regime forces attacked a Syrian Democratic Forces base in Syria on February 7, 2018. Bobby, something you and I talked about on the podcast. That's right. So Senator Kaine says... I'm alarmed that the Department of Defense believes that by merely designating a group as a partner force, it can respond with military action to protect that partner force and its property if threatened by any group, even one that poses no direct threat to the United States, its armed forces or persons, nor is covered by an AUMF. This broad and troubling interpretation of the president's Article II powers completely circumvents Congress's Article I responsibilities. Uh, The unintended consequences of this policy could be grave, and it raises the possibility of inadvertently becoming entangled in other countries' conflicts. Um, I view the use of collective self-defense as yet another unilateral expansion of the president's Article II authority in a now 17-year counterterrorism campaign, that seemingly knows no limits or end. I am also troubled that it appears the department has not appropriately notified Congress, as required by law, of instances in which U.S. forces have indeed acted in self-defense or in defense of foreign partners outside the declared theater of active armed conflict.
1: On that last one, what do you think he's referring to there? Because oh, that's, the, the Syria example is not yeah. outside a declared theater. I think he's talking about Africa. He's talking about, about Somalia?
0: Italy. Somalia, Niger. So I think I think Somalia has is an, a theory, theater of active. But Africa. I'm not sure Niger is. Niger probably not. And I think actually Niger might be the because earlier in the letter he refers to Niger. Oh, I see. Okay. So anyway, so the letter requests a series of briefings and answers to questions. Um, what, 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 to me, what this is really about is Iran, um, right? That 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 Kane is not worried about the theory in general. He's worried about sort of backsliding into right. a you know all but shooting war. With Iran, right, or what could absolutely be a shooting war with Iran
1: in Syrian territory, without at least Congress
0: ever having done anything affirmative to authorize it, right? And that, and that the, the the expansive definition of collective self-defense means the enemy of my enemy is, or sorry, the enemy of my friend is my enemy. Exactly.
1: No, so I I think Ooh, that's, that's an
0: episode title. The enemy of my friend is my enemy. Good. Write that down. I write, write. Okay. That down. So
1: I I think it's right that the overarching policy concern is absolutely about. Some situation accidentally or, you know, I suppose you could be conspiratorial and say they're, they're going to maneuver a situation. I don't, I don't think so, but whatever. Either way, one way or the other involved in a use of force directly against the Iranian military that then escalates out of control. And then, and then you've got a, uh, a full-scale conflict with Iran, including in Iranian territory and elsewhere, that is bootstrapped up out of the existing authorities. Now, here's the thing. I, I think that's right to be concerned about it. It's, it's also the case that since Vietnam um, it's been a central tenet of the subset of members of Congress who want to defend congressional prerogatives to worry about the bootstrapping scenario that if you're allowed to put advisors into the dangerous situation that they might be attacked and now you've got self-defense theories and now you've got unit self-defense theories, now you've got extended self-defense theories and it spirals up until you're there through a series of steps that are all legitimate examined in isolation but have a net effect of putting you into a
0: major conflict without congressional deliberation. But but I guess to me this is actually different from that, right? That there at least you're talking about silently escalating the same conflict. And what Kane is worried about is when you're in a theater where there are overlapping but distinct conflicts, Um, that the government's theory of collective self-defense would basically allow it to sort of not bootstrap, but sidestep, you know, um, sort of um, sidestep its way. Well, they could bootstrap up from the other force. Right. So here's the thing, though.
1: it's true that functionally as a legal matter, you can make arguments about, look, there's there's the Assad regime versus all the different forces fighting against it. That's one conflict with a certain set of analyses involving Russian intervention and Iranian intervention alongside the Syrian government against all these non-state actors uh, who are, in fact, supported by the United States and others. So there's states sort of in the background on the other side. but. And, and you, could, you could say as a legal matter, these are distinct conflicts that are all enmeshed in one another. But I think, as I said in my in introductory comment a moment ago, that here we're talking about a concrete combat within combat zone nexus. Mm-hmm. Like, I'd be much more concerned if we weren't actively engaged in the theater of hostilities right there with these guys. And these guys are a co belligerent force right there in theater with us, including with our advisors and with our air support against those same ISIS forces. And so I think to me that's enough of a nexus to not be as worried about the legal impropriety of, con- of wrapping them within our larger
0: so umbrella long, of self-defense. So long as there is still a meaningful conflict between us and ISIS, right? And I think part of the part of Keynes' concern is that if, as reports suggest, right, we are slowly but surely, I don't want to say winning, but sort of, you know.
1: Well, we're, we're taking their territory.
0: Right. No, no, I was going to say um, shrinking their footprint. Right, there's gonna come a point where that's not really what's going on where 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 the sort of that becomes the pretext as right, where where the where the principal engagement of US forces in Syria is no longer gonna be affirmative, active and support functions in the conflict against ISIS, but rather supporting partner forces in whatever conflict they're fighting.
1: Yeah, so I completely agree that if we stipulate And there's a big caveat coming. But if we stipulate (laughs) that the Islamic State is no longer the the focus, and that's not actually what we're We're not there yet. We're not, right. No, no, right. But not only are we not there yet, but even when we've taken all their territory, we're still not there yet. Yeah. Um, Territory is, is, yeah. so I think we agree about that. This means there's going to be a gray zone, to borrow a phrase. There's going to be a murky uh, period, a, twilight, a zone of twilight, in which it is plausible and probably accurate to argue that the Islamic State is still functioning in sort of full insurgency mode, not trying to hold territory, but still carrying out attacks, still requiring a presence to to counteract them. But when it begins to be less clear that that's really still our main focus, that is a dangerous point. But if it is the case that both our forces are there, and uh, Kurdish allied forces are on the ground, to actually still fighting the Islamic State. I think we can. I think it's proper and not, uh, not legally innovative in a problematic sense to wrap the mantle of collective, collective unit self-defense, if you will, around
0: them. I guess all this is to say, um, I've been critical before of the corker cain proposed you know revisions to the AUMF, but. Kudos to Senator Kane for keeping, you know, keeping an eye on these, for, for keeping this in the, in the in the spotlight as much as he can. I mean, it, I think, you know, the reality is whether you like what's happening in Syria, don't like don't like what's happening in Syria, just have no idea what's going on in Syria, it's incumbent upon Congress to really stay on top of this. Um, and if they're not going to at least, if they're not going to modify the AOF, at least know what's being done under the auspices of the laws you've passed. Well, you know I agree with that. I know. Um, all right so um, speaking of of Syria and detention um, it's time for our biweekly or semi-weekly. I always get those backwards yeah do versus maddus update did it did it did it extension for another what two weeks three weeks this time i think it was two Okay, so but they kick the can down the road if as they keeping, continue if, to negotiate. If you are keeping score at home, the, the so we have a we, we should we don't we don't thank them enough on the podcast. We have a crack research assistant, Alex Holland. Alex is the best. Um, he's a two L here at the University of Texas School of Law, um, and Alex uh, today um, went went and tracked this down for me. This will be the seventh extension of the original request to hold the proceedings in abeyance while the parties work out a settlement covering th- 3 months. So so this this negotiation over the terms of Doe's putative release is now in its entering its fourth month. Yeah, so obviously that, whatever the whatever weird.
1: the underlying Issue is they're they're working out, which seems to clearly involve diplomatic negotiations of some kind. Yeah, it is it tough nut to crack? Apparently,
0: well, so so here's the question that I'm wondering about today, because all things to me lately have been smacking of conspiracy theories. Um, if you're trying to come up with some sensitive diplomatic solution with Saudi Arabia. Today might not be the yeah. best time to try to come up with a sensitive diplomatic solution. i mean, like, I wonder if, like, a, a wrench, insofar as Saudi Arabia was involved, and we have no idea if they were. Right. Because the original proposal that the government had was to release dough into Syria.
1: Yeah, because let's remind listeners... Uh, the dude does have Saudi citizenship and has spent most of his life there, so that is the natural place. The, the to still
0: send him. unnamed, unknown dude. The dude. The dude. So um, I'm wondering if dude's um, uh, other country of nationality has just become a real complication. Given other developments in the news involving Saudi Arabia, well, it, it
1: is kind of not funny. It's not that I worry, but it's, no. it's it's interesting to imagine that they maybe they were about to cl- clinch a deal, and then suddenly this business should we pivot right now since we're talking about this complication? Yeah, let's talk about this complication. So uh, Khashoggi, Khashoggi, so
0: yeah. uh, Jamal Khashoggi, right, is a um, Washington Post columnist, um, is a journalist, is a Saudi journalist, um, and the story so far as we've been led to understand is while in Turkey. He was somehow lured to the Saudi. I don't know if it was the embassy I mean, he, or the he
1: consulate. Had, he was He was in the – well, that's a good question. I don't know which it was. But he went into a Saudi diplomatic facility for, I think, an ordinary – he needed paperwork of some something. kind. It may have been about – I'm embarrassed not to recall this. Uh, was it he was getting married or something? Uh, something. But, but he, he had, needed He needed some, some paperwork and had to go in. And never left. And never left. And the Turks came out pretty quickly saying he was murdered in there. Yes. And now there's all this stuff circulating online sort of – uh, showing members of what's being described as a, as a Saudi hit team. Here they are at the hotel, here they are at the airport, et cetera, et cetera. Right. I mean, we
0: have the makings of a massive diplomatic incident between yeah. Saudi Arabia and Turkey. Or so
1: this is sort of a, uh, a version of, if it plays out that way, it's pretty akin to the Russians uh, poisoning uh, it, you know, their uh, people they don't like in the UK. This seems like a Saudi hit on Turkish soil, although with the interesting complication of having done it, On their own diplomatic turf within Turkey,
0: which, which you know, I, I mean, so, so at the risk of trying to stay focused on the legal question, yeah, that's what we should. um, I actually think that does complicate it, right, because it's technically Saudi soil. Dip, right, the dip, the the valid diplomatic premises of a of a sovereign nation are their own soil for purpose of international law.
1: So, from a UN Charter perspective, a a, a use of purposeful lethal violence that against otherwise one of would your own citizens
0: in your own embassy, I think, is not necessarily an act of aggression against the the state in which the embassy is physically located. Could be, could um, be. Okay, but there's is some it, interesting U.S. domestic law pieces here. Yeah. Right. So the the, the two that I really want to talk about. Um, what I find fascinating is the reporting that our friend Shane Harris and his colleagues at the Washington Post have been undertaking the last couple of days, which has suggested that the U.S. government is in possession of intelligence intercepts um, that basically reveal something to the effect of this plan was going to happen. Right. Although they haven't said that they, the intel shows there was a lethal plan. Well, so right? but also, I mean, the the Post reporting is vague I don't know whether it's deliberately vague or un- or unintentionally vague about whether the US government was aware that it had this intelligence in its possession before the thing happened right we don't know the timing so this could have been something that came up the same day or, or, or were
1: less to win or they be. went
0: back after it happened and said do we ha-, you know go right. check the tapes do we have anything yeah yeah like here's the problem if we knew about it beforehand um, there's something called intelligence community directive 191 um, which is about the duty to warn. And it obligates U.S. intelligence agencies to inform the victim of a potential kidnapping or murder if the U.S. agency becomes aware of such a threat in the course of collecting or acquiring intelligence. So um, that's an interesting question. Ryan Goodman has a a post up on Just Security, I think, uh, earlier this evening that talks about the the Directive 191 problem. Um, There's also just the sort of larger, you know, what this means for our already awkward relations with Saudi Arabia. I think, you know, there's, President Trump has received a lot of, to my mind, rightful criticism for how uncritical, um, right, this administration has been even as um, MBS has increasingly, you know, turned toward radical, aggressive policing policies in Saudi Arabia.
1: Well, he, he's, MB, Mohammed bin Salman, the, the crown prince, is, yeah. is, a, is a fascinating figure in that um, he is both, you know, aggressively repressive in, on some dimensions, but also pursuing reform agendas in other parts of. Well, that doesn't excuse. Me, I'm just saying no, that's, no, no, no. that's why, as a foreign policy matter, it's a complicated question for the White House. Wait,
0: complicated foreign policy in Saudis. So you know, it's, <laughs> so it's interesting. Um, interesting timing then that we don't have an ambassador to Saudi Arabia. Right now That might be useful Of course before I lament that I'd want to know who it is That otherwise would be The ambassador Yeah that's fair But like I mean This is a time When having a a full ambassador As opposed to a deputy Chief of mission Um, I
1: I honestly I really mean it Like I might rather have The the deputy chief of mission If it's a If it's a career Foreign service officer In
0: this circumstance Um, But also interesting time For Nikki Haley To step down
1: Yes Yes indeed So that was a bit of a bombshell When that news dropped The other day Lots of speculation already As she positioned herself To run in 2020 to try to knock off Trump. Um, That sounds pretty good. Uh, But (laughs) the thing that makes this relevant for our podcast is that uh, immediately there was speculation. Oh, wait, before we get to that, wait,
0: can can I I say one more thing about Khashoggi before we we go to nepotism, um, (laughs) before we go to something that's really stupid, one more thing that's really serious um, is the Global Magnitsky Act. Oh, yeah. Uh, right, which we've only talked about on this podcast before in the context of Russia, but which is actually not limited to Russia. All right, explain explain the, uh, the
1: sanctions regime associated with the Global Magnitsky Act.
0: So the way the Magnitsky Act works is when the chairman and ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee send a letter to the president making a formal request, the president has to make a determination um, as to whether a foreign person was responsible for extrajudicial killing, torture, or other gross violations of internationally recognized human rights violations against individuals who seek to basically protect human rights, um, including freedom of expression. So, journalists. Um, And basically, um, if the president... So, the president under the Magnitsky Act is supposed to make a determination, presumably about whether MBS um, violated the Magnitsky Act, and if so, um, impose sanctions. Right. So, there's ICE...
1: Not having looked closely at the text, it sounds like there is a pretty substantial amount of wiggle room for the White House to decide uh, to delay and perhaps simply decide that no, it's not sufficiently clear what happened here. Yeah, therefore. and
0: also the sanctions are largely up to them. Yeah. But the underlying, but the the statute does require a determination at some point about whether or not the the person identified in the letter. Is in fact responsible. And just to be clear, I mean, this is not a partisan thing. Corker and Menendez. Lindsey Graham and Patrick Leahy um, and like 19 other senators, yeah. a bipartisan no, it coalition. It certainly should not be a partisan yeah, yeah. thing and it's not. So the thing Sorry, is... Oh, and it's 120 days the president has yeah. to make the determination. But, so
1: it's all about the particular named person as the possible responsible party. It's easy to imagine that what they'll decide is, well, there may be one or more low-level people like the ones who apparently have been identified yeah. in these videos. Yeah. They, could na- they could they they could could hit those people right. with sanctions relatively cost-free. Yeah. Um, I do not expect expect that within 120 days, we're going to see sanctions against the crown prince. No. I'm quite confident we will not
0: see No, but I do think- Unless Congress just does Well, so so I do think the contrast is interesting, right? I mean, you know, Khashoggi is not an American, but this kind of episode- But he was
1: resident in the United States. I was going to
0: say, and this kind of episode, I feel- I mean, call me crazy, but if this had happened during the Obama administration, I feel like there would have been an even louder outcry um, and, you know, a demand for a much more aggressive reaction- from the executive branch than we've seen so far.
1: Uh, maybe I don't know. Um, I think this is beginning to get a pretty good, as you said, we'll bipartisan see. outcry. I mean, we from still leaders so, on both
0: sides of the aisle. I really want to know what we knew and when we knew it.
1: Well, right. So there's there's that question, and but there are these harder questions of all right. So so what is the what is the cost that needs to be imposed? Mm-hmm. Like how do we how do we know we've done enough? And that's yep. that's a tough one.
0: Totally. All right. Um, on a lighter note. Uh, Right, so Nikki Haley stepping down does vacate the position of U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. And next thing you know, people are saying,
1: well, is he going to appoint Ivanka? Oh, God. And so this does precipitate an interesting uh, legal point for us to share, and that is that there is such a thing as what some used to call the Bobby Kennedy Act, <laughs> and it's the Anti-Nepotism Act from 1967, I believe. 1967. You
0: know, I, I wonder why it was 1967. Yeah,
1: yeah. So under Johnson, um, Congress uh, enacted a prohibition on presidential appointments of relatives. Um, it's not comprehensive. Nope. Because internal to the White House employment the Office of Legal Counsel determined on January seventeenth, January twentieth, on sorry, an January 20th, inauguration 20th, day. That's uh, right, two thousand seventeen. where yes. I get the seventeen. Yes. Uh, there's an OLC opinion saying, my man Dan Kofsky. He he said, and you know, I think probably plausibly they're like, look, this isn't. This is statute's best read not to encompass sort of the the inner White House employment circle. This is about departments and agencies, et cetera. Right. So
0: five USC thirty one ten. For purpose of this section, agency means a an executive agency, b an office agency or other established in the legislative branch, C, an office agency or other establishment in the judicial branch, and D, the governor of the District of Columbia. And the State Department's an executive agency. That's... But does this... Amb- but. but are the ambassadors... Yes. So actually. this is, an, is an actually an interesting question, right? So um, a U.S. ambassador, although we think of them as part of the diplomatic corps, part there of the department, personal representatives
1: of, the, of the, president, the president,
0: right? They do not f- leg- legally, right? They're nominated by the president. They're subject to removal by the president, right? Um, you know, there they, there are various contexts. Right. The in which State they, Department does does the Secretary of
1: State have line authority to order around ambassadors?
0: I don't think so. I think I think the Secretary of State only has sort of apparent, author- you know, ind- effective authority in the sense that the Secretary of State is the chief foreign relations officer, and the president sort of backs up the secretary. Okay, of State. look at it a different way: is let's assume
1: for the Sake of argument, the best. Ad law, administrative law, sort of framing for the UN ambassador, like any other ambassadorship, is that person and their office because there is an office of the UN ambassador. Well, can I read the
0: office description? Yeah, yeah, please. This is 22 USC section 287. I came prepared. Yes, you Um, did. That's unusual. The president, by and with the it is unusual. The president, by and with the advice and consent of the Senate, shall appoint a representative of the United States to the United Nations who who shall have the rank and status of ambassador extraordinary and plenipotentiary and shall hold office at the pleasure of the President. Um, there is no mention anywhere in 287A of the state of the State Department. Yeah. So, so then the question becomes: But is she
1: as that office? Right. is She an executive? Is the ambassador agency? itself an agency? So, right. so
0: here's the thing: There's good case law. There's thorough case law about why the executive office of the president, the White House, right. um, is not an agency for purposes of the APA. Um, right. But it has everything to do with the uniqueness of the executive office of the President. I actually think in terms of proximity to the, the president and right and sort of inherent function of the president you know. and right. okay, but I think
1: those arguments carry over pretty well to the ambassador.
0: I disagree. Oh, uh, really. So, so yeah, I disagree, right. right. So so the Constitution specifically contemplates ambassadors as officers. Um, Right, That the appointments clause specifically refers Mm, to ambassadors as one of the Mm -hmm. examples of officers in the United States who the president appoints. And so it seems to me that there's actually a pretty good argument, even with the 2017 OLC opinion in hand, that an executive agency for purposes of 5 U.S.C. 3110 A1A includes um, formal offices, that are not agencies unto themselves, um, created by Congress. So that's a good within point. the executive branch. Let
1: me let me off, let me shift a different ground and make a different. By the argument. way, this is all moot. Yeah, right now, but it's so fun. Look, yeah. hey, folks, we're academics. We're all about hypotheticals. <laughs> so this is a good one. What about this? Um, the com, the president's Article Two authority in foreign affairs. Mm-hmm. The boundaries of that are much contested. True. <laughs> Soul Oregon <laughs> doctrine from Curtis Wright Export Corporation. Very contested. Exactly how far it goes. But the hard candy core of it, the center of the Titsy Roll pop, <laughs> is unquestionably the diplomatic function, right? Szymczewski, so right? So, so question: Can you argue that the statute should be construed yeah. as a canon of constitutional avoidance matter to uh-huh. avoid the art, the possibility that it infringes, or at least that Congress should have to say expressly? If it's going to limit the ability of the president to decide who shall be his direct personal alter egos for diplomatic negotiations. But so this goes back
0: to why I think the ambassador is different from the executive office of the president. Everyone who serves in the executive office of the president is not subject to Senate confirmation, partly for those same very constitutional reasons, that it shouldn't be up to the Senate to get to decide who the president's chief of staff is. Which makes tons of sense. Okay. Okay. Going back to the founding, ambassadors have been subject to Senate confirmation, sure. um, right, which I think undercuts to at least some degree the argument that that office is so um, n- essential to the executive's executive function um, that there can be no constraints placed on it. Right? That, that in that regard, in, any ambassador is much more like the attorney general. Um, or the Secretary of State than the White House Chief of Staff.
1: Yeah, so the argument would, ha- would have to be that the particular straw within the bundle <laughs> of, yeah. of rights or powers yeah. that is the Article 2 authority, yeah. the particular strand or stick that is the diplomatic function yep. has special texturally-based stature that makes it different from just the Executive functions, other aspects, and that's that's pretty weak. I'm so just, you know, I'm ambassador, with the ambassadors
0: are super officers, yeah. Well, you know.
1: that they're that the ability of Congress to mm. constrain who gets to be an ambassador beyond because we're talking about above and beyond senate yeah. confirmation, yeah. but the ability of that Congress to, to impose constraints on who gets to play is narrower, at least as to that, function. than like Secretary of Defense.
0: Yeah, that would be
1: the theory. And, of course, there you might say, well, that doesn't make any sense because the commander-in-chief function should be similar. And, and we have rules, as, as the Mattis appointment illustrated, right? We have practical precedent showing We have, that, legal,
0: we have legal rules. that, that The Secretary we, of Defense about, has to be retired from the military. Right, that was some years. of the first stuff we talked about I, on this show. I know! Ah. All right, anyway, all this to say, but but even if you get to
1: the point where there's- But who Ivanka. could litigate it anyways? If Ivanka were appointed, would there be standing for anyone to bring a case-
0: so, interesting question. I mean, if she purported to vote, right, on behalf of the U.S., and someone challenged whether the requisite number of votes had been reached in a on a General Assembly resolution, right?
1: Um, yeah, so here's that the thing. sounds political but,
0: questioning. But the other thing about the antinepotism statute is it has its own penalty, and the penalty actually is not that that terrifying. The penalty is you don't get paid. Ah, well, as someone
1: perhaps uniquely immune from uh, the cost of that. So so
0: um, there's some debate about
1: whether that's the only penalty. Well, and that, that does suggest there's an efficient breach option. If the executive branch wants to
0: have somebody in violation, this fine, but they're not getting paid. No, and then the question is just whether that penalty is exhaustive or whether it also calls into question the legitimacy of the acts taken yeah. by that person. Is it framed as... The penalty shall be this. Or does it just say, by the way, by no, the way no you don't pay that person. Right. Yeah, interesting. All, All right. right, anyway, so, so uh, if
1: That's it's more not- more than you ever wanted to know about a hypothetical situation, but a good exercise.
0: Maybe Dennis Rodman is available? Oh, you know he's busy with North Korea. Well, why don't we just appoint Kim Jong-un as the ambassador to the UN? Because of love. Love. They're in love. He, they, 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 he sent him a letter love let love, love rule so okay. Lenny. so uh, uh there's our th- that's our our stupid topic for the day um we did want you want to talk speaking of of international intrigue oh, um, yeah. you want to talk about Big brother yeah yeah so okay so the case and is, by the way yep. there's no way we're going to be done in 54 minutes. what's our what's our current time we're at 41.
1: Oh, shoot. All right. I, I withdraw my previous prediction. I'm um, shocked. Big Brother Watch and others versus the United Kingdom is a uh, September decision by uh, a chamber of the European Court of Human Rights. Strasbourg. Uh, it's divided. Uh, there are There is a dissent on some key points here. But I want to kind of give the basic rundown because it's it's just – from my perspective as someone who follows closely U.S. surveillance law from the Fourth Amendment through FISA and all the other ins and outs, it, you know it's fascinating to watch uh, a very comparable legal system work out its particular provisions. So the claim, there's actually three different um, applications. They're all kind of consolidated together here. But the basic claim is that um, certain features of how the U.K. goes about three separate surveillance practices – Violate the European Convention on Human Rights as to Article 8, which is their privacy provision. And so if we're looking for the U.S. analogy, this is sort of, you know, as close as you're going to get to a Fourth Amendment type constitutional sort of constraint. Um, the that uh, also, it, uh, at least in some applications involving journalists, that this this collection activity uh, infringes freedom of expression in the sense of chilling journalistic sourcing or expo- running the risk of exposing it. And then there's some further claims about, you know, for example, that the whole thing's discriminatory in its impact on non-UK nationals and so on and so forth. But I just want to focus on the privacy slash what we might think of as the Fourth Amendment type challenge. So the basic idea is that the UK has a statutory regime pursuant to which all this stuff arises. The the Regulation of Investigative Powers Act or RIPA or RIPA of 2000. So to start with, this is all in accordance with and a challenge to express statutory law in the UK. Um, in brief, the main thing being challenged is the bulk collection, or let me, let me say it this way, the bulk interception off of fiber optic cables, off of particular uh, bears or or, or streams within the cable of, what is intended to be so-called, quote, external communications. And here's where it gets really fun for the FISA nerds, because if you're a FISA nerd like we are, um, then you're all about parsing the definition of electronic surveillance with its four different uh, sufficient condition categories. And and they all involve sort of these weird combinations of, is it a radio or is it a wire? Is the interception here? Is it there? Is the sender and the recipient? Are they here? Are they there? There's all these variables, and they, they play out in these complex ways that everyone hates trying to learn the first time. Here with the UK thing, it's much simpler. The idea is if it's an external communication, the statute calls for the ability to intercept it without judicial involvement. What has to happen is the Secretary of State makes a finding that as a sort of a general matter, national security or serious crime or economic well-being purposes will be served by the collection. And then a so-called Section 84 4 warrant uh, issues, not from a judge, but from the Secretary of State, and, and this is the predicate uh, from which bulk collection of content and metadata uh, meant to be for external communications uh, can come in. And then we'll get to we'll get to what happens next in a moment. But let me define external communications because it's a simpler definition. Simply put, if you imagine there are domestic to domestic communications, and there are foreign to foreign communications, <laughs> and then there's one in domestic, one in foreign communications running either direction, this is everything but domestic to domestic. So it includes communications coming or transmissions coming out of the UK to a foreign source like maybe a, a server at a, uh, you know, in in the United States um, or an email sent to somebody in Pakistan or vice versa as well as foreign to foreign that happens to pass through these cables by by dint of how the internet works. Um, so bulk collection of content and metadata. So pretty sweet deal in that circumstance. And then the constraint comes in, such such constraint as it is, at the querying stage. So there's this database that fills up with the bulk collection of content and metadata. For the content, if you're going to search content, the, the selectors you're using, the search terms you're using are supposed to be not about someone believed at that time to be in the UK. Now, if they're a UK citizen who's believed at that time to be in Syria, sounds to me, as, far as I read the statute, like that's fair game. So it's highly geography dependent. It's more cosmopolitan insofar as anybody who comes into the UK, citizen or not, that you know they're going to get this benefit. But anyone who leaves, you're, you're out of luck. That constraint isn't even there for metadata, right? Mm-hmm. And so the argument is all this collectively violates uh, the Article 8 right to privacy. So then it gets kind of fun to look at. So how does the ECHR understand this? And the, the text of article eight itself actually specifies to test. Um, it, it boils down to this, uh, the, the basis for the collection or the infringement on privacy. It's gotta be actually something created by law, right? So it's not discretionary. And here that, that box is, is checked roughly speaking, by the existence of the the legislation that gives rise to the regime. And then you've got to have this further inquiry into whether the uh, effects and scope of it all are accessible to the public and foreseeable in its operation to the public, which is a tricky thing when it comes to surveillance that's meant to be secret, at least in its application. So the court in prior cases has developed this, what was originally a six-factor or six-variable test. It's... It's grown to nine factors. Suffice to say, whatever you want to call it, it is a balancing test taking in the totality of the circumstances balancing the government interest and the individual interest which as i think you you would agree steve uh, a balancing test where you're comparing the interests at the end of the day that, that's sort of an invitation to the judges to decide you know their sense of what's more important and what the what the ameliorating circumstances are love, only love, in this love balancing test right and in, in this case though unlike say due process clause analysis where you get these kinds of balancings um, it's it's by it's in the text. The text calls not just for the rule of law test, but also, is it, quote, necessary in a democratic society to do this? And I, I wonder if you had the same reaction. When I hear the language that the doctrinal test specified is, is it necessary mm-hmm. in, to a democracy to do this? Or in a democracy, is this a necessary thing to do? Doesn't that sound to you like Palco in other cases that talk about essential to ordered liberty? In other words... This is very familiar to us on our side of the Atlantic from due process law, where where courts have often tried to describe what is really just balancing of interest in the eyes of the judges as if it's an objective test, as if there's some list of what is necessary or essential in a free and ordered society. And of course, there's not. There's just the judge's opinions about the weights of these things, which is not to say that it's illegitimate because as i said this is literally what article 8 says the court is supposed to you know contemplate suffice to say that they apply this test and the majority of the judges of the echr find that because there's not sufficient independent oversight of the selectors, it's not that they say there's been no showing of abuse. Right. We're not saying there's abuse, but those selectors. I mean, we need we need something more by way of independent oversight, and then they don't say what more is enough. They just say there's got to be more useful. And, yeah, more. So there's, there's a, yeah, you want more. more? So I could go on and on I've Mr. already gone on too long. There's there are a few other elements to the opinion, other problems the court finds, but I think that's the part that's just kind of interesting to compare and contrast to ours. The the state of play now is that they've actually already got some further statutory revisions in the meantime. And there's an interesting question. Are they good enough to supply the missing elements on this matter and certain other matters like the journalist to make it all okay? And, uh, you know, the jury's out on that. The only thing for sure is more litigation for the U.K. Woo-hoo. But on our side of the pond, we will be back in this suit because the USA Freedom Act has a renewal coming up. Oh, gosh. Not that far off. Do we so, have to? So maybe around episode 120
0: we'll be in the weeds of that again. I know. Okay, do it, have, it would be kind of funny to like do a time capsule, like, you know. What are we going to be fighting about, in Episode one hundred and twenty? That may, well, maybe that'll be our deep dive to get us to Episode one hundred on time. Seriously. All right. So the last thing we wanted to cover before turning frivolity is just a really quick this update. Um, this is hyper minor. This is just about why I'm going to have no life for the next, you know, it, it long period of time. Overdetermined. Yes, true. Um, so, so as Bobby mentioned, so I have three petitions pending in the Supreme Court right now um, in the Hernandez cross-border shooting case. On October first, the court called for the U.S. Solicitor General. That brief should presumably come back sometime in December. Um, on uh, what? Last Wednesday, uh, October third, um, the court called for the a response in Larabee. This is the retired service member case. Um, and just to round out the week, on Friday, the court <laughs> called for a response in the burn pit case. This is the. The lawsuit about whether the political question doctrine bars federal courts from adjudicating state law tort suits against private military contractors. So
1: none of your stuff has been rejected yet. No,
0: nope. you're alive in all. You have all these little pieces on the board, and the wheel is still spinning for all of them. Well, the other thing is, I mean, I you know, um, there's an interesting question, uh, and Adam, Adam Feldman is really the 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 Scotus uh, empiricist uh, writ large. Um, but there's a there's an interesting question about sort of just what you can take away um, from when the court calls for a response um, about sort of how how much that does or does not affect the likelihood of a cert grant. Um, there's no question that it goes up, right? Because someone's paying attention, someone's yeah. interested, someone thinks it's worthy. Of course, you know, the response probably has something to say about just how, how it is. The problem from where I'm sitting is, there, you know, depending upon how many ex- – so KBR – the defendant in the burn pit case, the solicitor general is on the, the other side in Larrabee and Hernandez, um, right? both of these uh, uh, briefs could get extensions, so this could all end up being due in December. You are going to be in a world of pain. Good time to move. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah we're, we're going to be neighbors. We're going to be
1: neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> it's, the, it's the most podcast geek-tastic
0: thing ever. We could do this podcast in our in our Tec- like, technically, backyard. Technically, our backyards will not directly intersect. No, but if we shout loud enough, we'll hear each other.
1: <laughs> I'm so psyched that you're moving into the hood. Yeah,
0: well, I'll see you guys. Um, I- I'm psyched that we're moving. I'm not psyched about everything that has to happen between now and the move. Yeah, well, you'll be in
1: here uh, not supervising your move. You'll be in here supervising your
0: brief writing, I suspect. Or some combination of both. Just not sleeping. Yeah. That's All right. For sure. uh, so for Volody.
1: All right. So speaking of not sleeping, we were out being very social. Oh yeah, so late. Kara <laughs> and I were out
0: till like nine thirty. No, oh, we were What, what time later. did that show start? It started at seven.
1: All right. So give me the rundown. Uh, bottom bottom line first, and then so highlights. Lucy
0: Wainwright Roach opened, and she was she was fun. Um, she, you know, I I like her music. I actually think she was even funnier than she like she was like her her little talking in between the songs was was. Uh, a stand-up act unto itself Nice You know the Indigo Girls I mean the reality is They've been professional And they've been out on tour Bobby for over 30 years Does it So it, do they seem tired And going through the
1: motions No So they seem like I mean, Really I, really good I, At what, what they I do What I've
0: always loved About the Indigo Girls Is that you know No matter where the show is I mean I've seen them In so many different parts Of the country There's always You know They have something different They want to talk about Right like they have some There's some vibe um, And what struck me About Thursday's show Was how political it was
1: so against so, a baseline
0: of pretty commonly political, no, no. So, shows so the little girls, them, right, the girls are not shy, right? Oh, no, like a lot of the music's political. A lot of music, but the the playlist was a very sort of heavy on songs they don't necessarily play that often, but that have really strong activisty political undertones. Um, you know, some of the sort of inter-song discussions were you know about the times we live in and the the upcoming elections and you know the, the they both obviously are are big into georgia politics georgia has a huge gubernatorial race coming yeah, up yeah
1: so were they they were channeling taylor swift you're saying in totally for people to vote taylor yeah. I, I i do not mock hey
0: i love it when when yeah, celebrities or, or how about this care about taylor swift was channeling the indigo girls yeah fair enough fair enough uh, what but, about the
1: music anything really good that they covered that was unexpected oh,
0: man yeah i mean like they played a lot of more obscure songs Yeah. You know? It wasn't. It wasn't like their standard, you know, greatest hits type of concert. It was a lot of sort of interesting back catalog, deep yeah, cuts. which which I loved. Um, and I gotta say, I mean, I have always, always, always been an Amy person. Um, you know, if you're a Real Dingo Girls fan, you tend to sort of gravitate a little bit toward one of them over the yeah, other. They have very different styles. I, I think it's safe to say, and I don't think I'll be causing any great umbrage to say, um, time has been less. Um, disruptive for Amy than it has been for Emily.
1: Emily's singing style is very rough
0: on her vocal cords. Yes. did she? And s- I think, sound it? So, so I think you know. I think I think if you listen to them, Amy sounds like she has sounded consistently yeah. over 30 years. Emily, I think you know, as time goes on, her range is I think shrinking a little. But I bet it's. I but bet bet it's still amazing. I was
1: gonna say I, I imagine also that with all that experience, it's a little bit like you know late Greg Maddox. Like right. it's not what
0: it used to be, but but painting the corners <laughs> with skill. Right. Not right. I mean, uh, and, and, and who am I to judge? I mean, but but we're gonna if we're gonna. To criticize music, let's go. Well, but as, an, but as an Amy fan, I mean, that was Amy's. Yeah, she's you were in just, hog heaven, eh? She's so good, and and they are. I mean, if you've never seen them live, I have. I, I know you have. But I'm saying to, to listeners. Oh wait, there's other people involved in this conversation. What what comes through <laughs> only a little bit on the on the live albums, and what really comes through in in person is you know, like any rock and roll group, they love to jam. Um yeah. right and sometimes you don't really get that from the even the live albums yeah. how much sometimes they're just like they're feeding off of each other's energy and they're jamming with each other and they did that a bunch of times Thursday night and that was always a that's lot of fun That's very
1: cool. That's part of what makes to me it makes live music different from what we hear in the car.
0: And, and I've seen them play with bands. Um I saw them play with the oh, This is just the two of them? With the National Symphony Orchestra? This is just the two of them.
1: Oh, that's interesting. That might have moved the needle on me. A, yeah. You know, Still wouldn't have gone. Those though. are
0: always no, but those are always of all my of all of my favorite 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 Inigo Girls shows, and my favorite one ever was this amazing show they did in stores at UConn when I was in law school. Um, the two of them together are always the best. Like that's just, pretty cool. Just the two of them up there with their guitars.
1: Well, my experience was at Austin City Limits Music Festival. We went uh, for most of the day on Friday. And I'll start with the, you know, so Paul McCartney was the headliner that night. And he will be again this coming Friday night because ACL Festival, my friends, if you don't know, basically the model is they do the whole festival twice. Mm -hmm. Um, So he came out. It's it's, Second uh, verse, same as the first. It was really good. Paul McCartney, I was a little worried, you know, how well will he hold up? How's his voice? And uh, he was spry. He sounded great. There, There were a few moments on High Notes where he didn't try to go there. But, he, but it really wasn't much. I mean, there were a lot of things that were classical Paul McCartney high notes, scream deals, and he pretty much carried it. And, uh, you know, would the, we, can all, we can all be that spry at his age. He played a mix of, of Beatles, Wings, and some of his more recent independent stuff. Um, pretty, I would say actually kind of a little bit heavy on the Beatles stuff, which for people like me who were, tr- who were seeing a Beatle for the first time, that was really great. But I, I think most people I talk to, we all agree, there's a big group of us there, We all agreed that the neatest thing was when he did a quiet, uh, just him and his acoustic, Blackbird,
0: oh. and he prefaced it by
1: saying that that he and the band they were in England at the time, watching the events unfold in Little Rock, and I didn't know this, but apparently he said like we wrote this song for the the students in the in the in that situation. Is that
0: old. They wrote it in '58, really? Like that? It was that old?
1: He said this was all in the spirit. I don't know when he wrote it, but yeah. I'm sure it was probably later. But it yeah. but maybe it was hearkening back to that. Yeah. But he wanted this to go out to people especially kids who were suffering in the civil rights movement. And so if you look at that, take your broken wing and learn to fly, a lot of the lyrics really take on a totally different tone from that. And he, he played it and sang it. Just You just thought you were back, back then when it was a fresh song. So that was very cool. Um, uh, the fireworks for Live and Let Die were cheesy <laughs> but, but kind of fun and very sort of,
0: you know. Is that his best-known post-Beatle song? Live and Let Die?
1: I, uh, you know, there's there are a number of wings songs. He yeah. hit all the wings hits. Yeah. I think that's probably the most famous because it's been you know yeah. covered some um, poorly poorly covered by Guns N' Roses, I would add. <laughs> um, so, the, but the most fun moment, the most fun, so the end of the pre encore was Hey Jude, of course, which is I think how I've looked at the set lists elsewhere, and that's what he always closes with for obvious reasons. And it was awesome. I and mean, there there was. You know, thousands upon thousands of people in that field, and then uh, in the na 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 na's, he you know inevitably the the band dropped out. He dropped out, just pointed the microphone at the crowd, and he said, "All the guys singing," you know, and he kept it going for a while. And hearing so many people, so many thousands upon thousands of people in Austin, in in the cool night air out there in Zilker Park, singing the 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 the, the, the that iconic uh, set of. Tunes. I mean, that was just great. It was uh-huh. so much fun. Now I got it. I got to say something about this other band I saw earlier that day. Greta Van Fleet. Have you heard of them? No. The so Greta Van Fleet is basically a sort of a deeply Led Zeppelin inspired trio of brothers plus a drummer um, who are, let's just say, not afraid to look and be as if they walked out of the frames of. Uh, song remains the same. So the lead singer walks out. He's got on basically like gold pants and a gold belt buckle. And then the only other thing he's got is his long fringed vest and all these uh, bird feathers woven into his hair. Um, the guitarist was unreal. One song must have gone on with a, uh, you know, freebird length guitar solo that was amazing, punctuated by him, you know, throwing the guitar behind his head, doing a solo, and then his guitar gets stuck in his long hair. So the roadie has to come out, and he's still doing the solo. His brother on the microphone is laughing his ass off, watching this unfold, and he's trying not to, you know, trying not to lose the track of the solo. The guitar tech is unwinding his hair. Eventually, they got it done. It was just good, clean 1970s fun um those those guys are worth going to see i don't know how long they're going to be around doing this because it, it was it was a it was a lot of the same thing but it was it was good old-fashioned uh, classic
0: rock good newly tough, man. done all right so we actually had a life last week we did i'm not uh, this don't week count is on it a, uh, don't count uh, on
1: further uh, versions of that it'll nope. be mostly baseball
0: recaps now baseball football hey longhorns Woo! i had to turn down a ticket to the to the baylor game yeah, Yo, well, you know, that's a trap game a little
1: bit because Baylor's better than they were last year and it's very easy to look past them right now. And so. we have two
0: young kids. Well, yeah, that was a good call. Um, the West Virginia game, I think that's going to be the, the, that's gonna yeah, be the that's,
1: show. Yeah, that's, that's going to be huge. Looking forward to that.
0: All right, so listen, um, market calendars, DC people, Wednesday, November 14th at noon, episode 100, coming somewhere near you, we'll have more details. Uh, go back online with those t-shirts, you know, good call. Should we just set up on a corner like
1: Busker's? Just a microphone on a corner and start doing a,
0: just a random arrested. street
1: corner recording of NSL podcast. In D.C. we would totally get arrested. That would be great. Um, and I'll like at the last minute kind of act like I just walked up and who are you and who's this guy? By the way, I have jury duty
0: tomorrow. You do? Yes.
1: Oh, that's awesome. There's Okay, so there's like no in like, chance.
0: In like municipal court. Hey, what do you do? Oh, I'm a lawyer. What kind of lawyer? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a law professor. What do you teach? Constitutional law. What do you focus on? The role of the court's. Strength. <laughs> <laughs> Your honor, we challenge for cause. That'll be really fun. I hope you get picked. That'll be awesome. I, I really hope I don't. Um, anyway, he is at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. T-shirts, 100th episode. Stay safe out there. Adios.